If you would, turn me to Matthew chapter 3. I'm going to teach this morning a kind of a, maybe a one-off sermon. I don't know. We've not been able to really land on any specific topic except that the Lord is dealing with us to be clean, to be pure, to maybe clean up old messes. Uh, he's, he's dealing with us to get old leaven out, uh, stuff that we've been dealing with for decades. Honestly, if we're not addressing something he dealt with us six months ago, we're backslidden in that arena. We cannot forget that our God is a holy God, and if we walk with him, we can't help but be holy. If we claim to walk with God, but we stay dirty, there's, there's some kind of disconnect somewhere. If I, well, let's say in the morning uh, before church, I put on this uh, cologne I like. My wife loves it. She just doesn't want to be around it because she doesn't want it on her. So we kind of have this rule because my side of the bed is right there by the door. My dresser is right there by the door. So that's where I open my drawer, pull out my cologne, spritz myself. And she'll say, did you have to do it right before I walk past you? I said, yeah. And I always say, you don't like it? She said, I love it. It's a nice smell. I don't want to smell like it. But she knows if she gets too close, it'll get on her. She knows if I hug her right when I put it on, she won't smell like a lady. She'll smell like me. And that's just a natural example of proximity. She gets too close to me, she'll walk away smelling like me. Also, if I hug on her or love on her, I'll walk away smelling like her. I don't mind that so much. I'm pretty secure in my masculinity. If I smell like my wife, it's because I've been loving on her. But likewise, if, we're, if we are fellowshipping with God, we should come away smelling like him. And I think we know this, which is why maybe we don't fellowship with him outside of service. And I would really tell you, if you fellowship with God outside of service, services won't be so hard on you. Amen. It's kind of like if you work out all week, go work out with some buddies, it's not that big of a deal. If you don't work out all week, you work out once a week, you'll be sore till the next workout. So the theme we've been hitting at lately has been holiness and cleaning up things. And so we had a, a very different service Wednesday night where we addressed parenting and bad parenting and abusive parenting. And it's a, it was a unique experience for me in that as I, I, I ministered and taught on verbal abuse, maybe emotional abuse, I could begin to feel the hurt of children. And I, I can't distinguish whether it's current children in our church or just current children in general, but it was a physical ache within me that really at the same time doubled with the anger of God because I could feel the anger of God towards bad parenting. It may be I, I'm just, I was just experiencing what children go through when the person they look to as God Almighty, their mom and dad, scream at them and yell at them without any rhyme or reason because mom and dad are unstable and immature and reckless. I don't know. I can't discern that. I just know I physically hurt internally. And I also have had a lot of good fallout since Wednesday night, a lot of text messaging, a lot of phone calling. And uh, before even all that started transpiring, I realized I'm going to have to teach on repentance because we got to clean stuff up. And maybe you're not parenting. Maybe you don't even have kids yet. Maybe you're single, but you still got to learn how to repent as well. So my subject this morning is, I'm going to call it, if I got a title, we don't do this too often, but I have here lately. Successful repentance. That, that, that ought to excite us because we want to be able to repent of something and not have to keep apologizing for it. If we keep apologizing for it, we've not repented. We make a distinction between apologies 
and repentance. Once you have 100% repented, you don't ever have to apologize again because you don't do it anymore. I haven't had to apologize for robbing banks in ever because I don't do it. But there are other things I still apologize for because I haven't fully mastered it. So we kind of, in our Christianese, we smear the line and we say, I got to repent to you. And I get it. We're not here to really split hairs. Uh, Danielle, I got to repent to you. You know, I said something the other day in staff meeting and uh, I need you to forgive me. I'm repenting. Really, it's an apology because it may or may not come out again wrong. Uh, I'm not truly repenting, though my heart is to repent. I'm apologizing and apologies are good. They go a long way. But if you and I are having to apologize or what Pastor Vaughn used to call sin and repent, sin and repent. If we have to keep doing it over and over again, and the frequency with which we're doing it isn't getting further and further and further apart, we're not really repenting at all. Because to repent means to turn and go the other way. So let's look at a few verses here. Uh, Matthew chapter 3 is where we wanted to start. And I think I was going to look at this in the New Living Translation. I think it's where it is, but I'll just read it to you. Let me first give you uh, the Greek word for repentance is metanoia, but it means to change one's mind, to heartily amend with abhorrence for one's past sins, to heartily amend with abhorrence for one's past sins. To repent in the Greek means to hardly amend, to completely fix, to turn away from with this abhorrence for what you used to do. Sometimes we don't realize how sinful our sin is, which is why we still keep patty caking with it. So some of the stuff I want to say today, the purpose to it, and maybe some of the steps and mechanics I give you is for the sole purpose of you realizing how hurtful, how nasty, how shameful it really is. Because if we could see how hurtful, how shameful, how nasty a sinful lifestyle is, it might really feed and motivate our repentance and bring it about more quickly. Uh, years ago when I worked at the zinc mine, I worked with a guy, a really good guy out of New Mexico, great geologist. Um, he became a good friend. He began to um, confide in me. He was still struggling with alcohol. He'd been through a horrific divorce. He fell into alcoholism. He'd had a couple DUIs. And uh, he had heard my story right before my wife and I got married. She was hit by a drunk driver. My wife was. And it, my wife was okay. The airbag went off and broke her finger real janky-like. So she had to have actually, her finger was broken so bad she had to have surgery and screws put in there, pins. But when his name was Mike, uh, when Mike got his next DUI, the fact that he realized he could have hurt somebody, he respected me a lot and it respected my family. He came to work the next day and he said, the thought that I might have been the one that hit your wife. And he repented to me with tears to think that I could have been the guy that hit your wife. And it tore him up. It's like he was drinking to medicate himself. But when he realized, because of my story, what drunk driving does, it, it maybe solidified the realities of it. And it really, literally sobered him up. And it sobered up his thinking. And I don't know if he ever drank again after that. But you see this older geologist very tough guy, but had really tender heart to realize what his sin had done or could have done. It brought about repentance. And as far as I could tell in being a coworker of his, he was not a believer though. we did have some talks about God. If we can understand the exceeding sinfulness of our sin, it will feed our desire to beat it. If you don't hate your sin, you will tolerate it. 
Just like if you're comfortable with cockroaches in your house, you won't have a zero cockroach policy. If you're comfortable with mice and rats in your house, you won't have a zero mouse policy. If you, if you don't have a zero, uh, if you're comfortable with snakes, you won't have a zero snake policy. And there, uh, <laughs> I like bats. I wouldn't mind if I had a bunch of bat boxes in my backyard to draw bats to my house because I cave. Bats are a favorite animal of mine. I would save a bat before I'd save a cat. <laughs> Truthfully, I can tell you I've never saved a cat, and I have rescued a bat or two in my day. Yes, the little flying rats. That's, the, that's my animal. But we have good friends out in Iowa. Miss Molly, she hates bats with all of her passion. They live in like an old castle. The walls are full of bats. So I mess with her quite frequently about bats. She has a zero bat policy. I would invite them to my home regularly. If you don't have a zero sin policy, you'll still aid and abet it. Amen. They make this trap because they get these, they have a, it's a, anyway, they have bats in their house. They'll be awakened with bats fluttering on them. Apparently you have a zero bat policy. I would wake up and I would, I would think that was cool. I would like, oh, well, let's, well, let's help him. He's not gonna, he doesn't have rabies. We're not gonna turn to Cujo here. He's just a bat. He's just in our house. They devised this trap, a bucket, and they put tape on it. Sticky, double-sided sticky tape, and they put a broom handle on it, and they catch it, and then it just gets stuck. You know, and then they just put the lid on the bucket and throw it in the trash. Now, that's something I would do to a cat, but not a bat. And I said, at least take a hammer to its head. I mean, that thing's going to dehydrate, die. I mean, like, at least just slit its throat or something. But that's how they view bats. Me, I go caving with them, love them think they're cool. They're amazing. The only mammals that can fly and they have sonar. They can, there was a famous test years ago. Um, they wanted to test the accuracy of a uh, Chiroptera's sonar and they built this grid work in a pitch black room made out of piano wire. Very tight network, three-dimensional grid and they hung bells on the end of the piano wire and the bats could fly through that in total darkness with like 99% accuracy without tripping a single bell. That's God's creation could send out a pulse, hear it reflect off of a piano wire, and be able to navigate while flying. Pretty wild stuff. You just like bats a little bit better. I just manipulated your heart. <laughs> no, all right, that is cooler than a cat. Yeah, all right, enough of that. I want to get sin out of your life, but I have to have your permission. Actually, God wants to do it. Most of what we do is apologize to God and people we don't ever truly repent. Most of what we're doing is apologizing. We're not truly repenting. If to repent is to amend for past sins and to change one's mind and go the other direction, most of what we're doing is really just apologizing. And that's great. It's part of the process. But if we, if we take the old adage, and it's accurate, that to repent means to stop, to turn, and go the other way, then let's view repentance as a 180-degree spectrum. And most of what we do is we come here, we violate somebody and we say, oh, I'm sorry, I just violated you. And we back up, but we don't hardly begin to turn. And so one of the things I want to encourage us with this morning is sometimes repentance doesn't turn immediately. If there's 180 degrees, it may take two or three or four years to completely click, 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 click. And if at any stop point along the way we stop, 
we have not completed repentance. Now, the sin may be less egregious at 90 degrees than it was at 180, but these two vectors added together is still not where we should be. So I want you to be encouraged by that, that sometimes repentance, maybe most of the time, of whatever our behavior is, there's some stuff we do that is one-off, like, whoa, ooh, won't ever do that again because it's not a lifestyle. It's just a whimsical, what was I thinking? Note to self, don't ever do that, and that's the last time you think about it. Then there are those habitual things that are what we call familiar sins. It could take quite some time of prayer and dedication and fasting and therapy or counseling or discipleship to fully click, 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 and never go back. So don't be discouraged if you're still sinning and apologizing. You may be somewhere along the way. All right, I don't want to get ahead of myself in my notes. Apologies are important and go a long way, but they are not true repentance. So Matthew 3, 8, King James says this, then I'll read it in the Living Translation. Bring forth fruit, therefore, or bring forth, therefore, fruits, meat for repentance. Uh, New Living Translation says, prove by the way you live that you have repented of your sins and turned to God. Prove by the way that you are living that you have repented of your sins and turned to God. So there ought to be proof of our repentance. We'll get to this in a minute, but it keeps coming up, so I'll say it. If we have to demand that people notice we've repented, we may not have. If you have to keep promoting, well, I've changed. I've changed. Well, if you're the only one that can tell, and maybe you've changed three degrees, and that is, with all technical speak, change, because it's not 180, it's 177. And that's improvement. But if you were a gun and we were to fire you that direction, you'd still hit pretty close to target. So we're glad you can change. I'm glad you can tell you can change. The rest of us can't yet, so just keep changing. And when you actually come online and we can tell, you won't have to keep promoting your change. If you have to keep saying, I'm an apple tree, I'm an apple tree, I'm an apple tree, and nobody can tell, you're probably not bearing fruit. Whether we are truly repenting to God alone or to people, we have habitually harmed, we prove true repentance by a changed lifestyle. Whether repenting to God or to people, and those are the only two things we repent to. We're either repenting to God or we're repenting to people, we can prove that we've really repented by a changed life. So apply this to marriages. If you're going to have a successful marriage, you have to be good at repenting because nobody's perfect and we will sin against each other. I fully expect my wife to sin against me. I fully expect I'm going to sin against her because I have a sin nature just like she does. We have emotional days. We have stressful days. We have just... Then there's days the devil throws a fiery dart. And, and if those happen to land on your bad day... It could, it could be a little tense. I've told you there's been a few times in our marriage my wife would come to me and say, don't forget, I'm not the bad guy. Well, that's a real subtle way of saying quit being a jerk. And that's not what you want to hear when you're being the jerk. So that's when you exercise the fruit of self-control, love, joy, peace, patience, happiness, gentleness. Don't yell at herness. <laughs> I've never yelled at her. We don't scream like banshees. That's a carnal demon. Amen. If you're going to have a successful relationship with anybody, including your kids, you're going to have to apologize a lot and then begin to repent. 
And anyway, I'm getting ahead of myself. Let me stick with my notes here. A changed lifestyle will almost always take work, and it will be a process, like with this 180 degrees. So maybe, and we stop right now in this sermon, because this is a different sermon for me. Evaluate whatever your familiar sin, whatever your behavior you've been trying to change. Where are you on this 180-degree scale? If 180 degrees is the worst you ever were at this, and zero degrees is 180 south, zero degrees is north, and thankfully this is actually true north, roughly. True north, zero degrees is serving God as he would have you with flawless sinlessness in this area. Where are you on that? Uh, are you maybe 14, 15 degrees north, northeast? Are you maybe north three degrees east? You know, where are you? Or are you still down here, maybe, uh, you know, north 160 degrees east or south, southeast? You and I know it. When's the last time this thing flared up? When's the last time pride rose up? When's the last time lust rose up? When's the last time greed rose up? When's the last time laziness flared up? Where, where are you? Because the more you point towards true north, wherever you're supposed to be in Christ, the less this thing's going to happen over here. So you have to know for yourself. You have to know in your walk with Christ where you are in this process of true repentance, of truly amending and changing and going a different direction. We can't use the cultural excuse, was this is the way I was raised, or we're Irish, you, everybody knows we, we fight like this, or you know, uh, I'm, I'm Latino, so you know we're real emotional, or whatever. I'm a woman. You don't know. There's no excuses. The fruit of the Spirit is the fruit of the Spirit. It doesn't say unless you're Nigerian, unless you're from Cookville, unless you had a bad upbringing, unless it's that time of the month. It doesn't give you any excuses. It's the fruit of the Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit overrides all culture, all, all hormones, all past experience, all anything. You read Galatians 5, there's no like asterisk where you go to the footnotes and say, except for this, and it reads off a list of you know, excuses like you would at the bottom of a medication commercial. <laughs> it's not how it works. Fruit of the Spirit works, period, if you'll work the fruit of the Spirit. Apologizing is usually the first step in repentance. Something has gone wrong, we're to blame, and we don't want it to happen again. I think part of the key is to recognize when you are to blame and being humble enough for it to be important to you. If you're to blame, well, guess what? You're to blame. And then you ought to go apologize so as to be sweet. As if you love somebody, it should be easy to say, please, I'm sorry. Forgive me. If we can't even apologize, right there, our pride is like wedging uh, a block in that process. I keep thinking uh, a year or two ago, our family went down and saw the USS Alabama, which is a World War II battleship, and they had the big guns. And the bullets for those guns are about five and a half feet tall. You ever seen a bullet five and a half feet tall that explodes? It had a range of like 35 or 40 miles. This is the big battleships with the huge guns. It was so cool. I looked at the thing and said, I could blow up the world with this gun. Oh man, I could blow up the world. And it's just impressive engineering. But that whole thing turned on giant gears. Click, 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 click. What's really cool is there was actually a scope. And a guy, you, you climb up into the housing because the housing of those guns is about as big as a sanctuary. And then it goes down about 15 stories to the keel of the ship. And it's all hollow. And that's where all the parts and all the gunpowder and the bullets come up through elevators. This is all World War II engineering. 
no computers. There's a guy who sits there, and he actually has these monoculars that are built in, and each eye goes down basically telescopes, 20 feet, 30 feet either side, and then can see out the side. So he has stereoscopic vision that puts his eyes as wide as our sanctuary here. So then he could then dial it in, and then there was optics on either side of the guns. So he could dial it in. But pride, click, 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 click. Pride is like taking a small little metal wedge and putting it right there in the gear on the deck. Because if you can't say, I'm sorry, you're stuck. This is as far as you turn. Pride stops your repentance. Self-justification stops your repentance. Excuses stop your repentance. And no matter how badly you want to turn and line that guns of Navarone, it's much bigger than the guns of Navarone, but that massive big gun, as they call it, with just a little bit of pride, a little bit of self-justification, a little bit of excuse, you won't turn it. And you could miss the opportunity to hit target. A gun that big, huge, it's awe-inspiring if you ever get to go down to Mobile and see that Navy museum. It, it's, it's awe-inspiring. It's emotional to see the greatness of America in the greatest generation, to smell the diesel. The ship still reeks of diesel. But to know that huge weapon can be stopped by something as, as large as my cell phone or as small as my cell phone. It doesn't take much pride to stop your repentance or excuses or self-justification. Repentance is viewed as the proverbial 100-degree turn is often accomplished one degree at a time. Decisions, prayers, disciplines, and systems allow for the requisite incremental changes necessary to accomplish total repentance. So if we're talking about successful repentance, we want to make sure that in whatever area of life, wherever we're still turning, we keep following it through to the end. We don't just knock Goliath down with the rock to the head. We take his head off. We don't just get 45 degrees. We, get, we finish it out, and we get to where we're supposed to be as a Christian in Christ. The desire to repent can be true and sincere without achieving it. You can say, I want to repent, but it doesn't mean you do. We often say the, hell to, or the road to hell is paved with good intentions. If the desire is true, though, changes will be made. And again, I want you to be encouraged that you don't have to be perfectly there. When that gunner, I don't know, forgive all my lack of knowledge on terminology. When that guy says, turn 75 degrees, he knows it's going to take a little bit of time to get that, that giant gun cranked that direction. And when God says, repent, he knows the change can instantly be made in the heart, and then it'll take some time to walk it out. Along the way, apologies to those affected by incomplete repentance, like your wife, your kids, your friends, your boss, or your God, they will go a long way while you are still turning your ship. Say, I'm sorry I did it again. I'm sorry, honey, I told you I was going to work on not coming home stressed out. You're not the contractor. You're not the contractor. And she might say, yes, and the kids aren't contractors either. They're seven years old. You can't yell at them like they dropped the hammer and blew the generator. Apologies go a long way. There is a common teaching that says you should never apologize to anybody under your authority. That's a lie from the prideful pit of hell. And your children should have the right to be able to come to you and say, you hurt me. If this violates your, I'm the father, I'm the mother, 
you're a moron. You ought to be able to receive hurtful correction from your child if you've hurt them. If they say, that's not right, out of the mouth of babes. Children can often nail you to the wall quicker than anybody. And if you snap like some dictator and say, you watch who you're talking to. I'm your father. You are a fool. And you'll crush that kid's soul and you'll override God's ability to even use your child to bring some soft sensibility. With, with Justice, my five-year-old, we, he's a boy, so we tickle wrestle a lot. And there are times I go too far and he goes from giggling to now it's like a cry. And, and now I finally figure out, all right, we're wrestling too tough for him. And he'll say, he'll start crying. He'll say, Daddy, you hurt me. Daddy, you hurt me. Well, then it's my time to say, I'm so sorry. I'm not like a belligerent individual who says, well, deal with it. Watch who you're talking to. I'm your father. I'm the one in the wrong. Why would I not stop and say, son, I'm so sorry. Please, please forgive me. Daddy didn't realize I got too rough there. I'm sorry. He said, that tickle was hurting too hard. You were tickling too hard. I'm forgive me, son. I didn't mean to do that. Why is that so hard? I don't know why that's hard, but for some people, that's hard. If you sin against anyone, you apologize to them, even if they're a person you created through sex. Anybody you hurt, even if you're the president of the United States, you owe them an apology. There's nothing in the scripture that says, repent unless you hurt somebody under you. Where's the logic or wisdom behind that? But I've heard, I've heard ministers teach it. Never apologize to your kids. Sure, if you want to send them to hell, don't apologize to them. When it comes to repentance, there's about five scenarios with which we repent under. Let me give these to you. I've been meditating on this, kind of breaking it down, trying to think you know, scientifically how we can organize this. Five scenarios that I can see in no particular order. We'll say the first scenario of repentance is when the Spirit of God comes upon you or I and convicts us and we turn and repent to God. His Spirit moves sovereignly upon us. We're convicted of something we did not know was wrong. Maybe it's the, the conviction for salvation. Maybe we're going along our life and the Lord says, that that you're doing, never do it again. It's sin. And all of a sudden your eyes are open and you say, oh Lord, you're right. Forgive me. How did I never see that? So first scenario is the Lord convicts you and you repent to him. And it may be he repents or he convicts you of what you've done to somebody else. Either way, we repent to him. Second scenario in that category is your own conscience convicts you of something you've done and you say, Father, forgive me. His spirit didn't convict you, but the word of God written upon the table of your heart convicted you. Like Romans 2 says it, uh, the unbeliever, the Gentiles do show the work of the law written upon their hearts for their conscience either the meanwhile excusing or else accusing them. Maybe you've, you've got the word of God written upon your heart and uh, all of a sudden you do something, you realize, that's ah, wrong. Father, please forgive me. So the Holy Spirit doesn't initiate that conviction. Your own heart does. Thank God for both of them. But the person you're repenting to is your God. The second scenario or set of scenarios, which will be three and four on your list, is uh, God convicts you and you have to go apologize to somebody else. God convicts you uh, I should say, you, uh, you're convicted and you got to go apologize to somebody else. Uh, you do something and you realize later, I shouldn't have done that. 
Um, a bunch of us were hanging out the other day, and, and uh, somebody kind of used an expression that was a little off color. And as soon as they said it, they said, I'm sorry. Please forgive me. That's old me coming out. And we said, hey, no problem at all. That was his own conscience convicting him, saying, I shouldn't have said that. Forgive me. I commend him. It's awesome. A couple of days later, he was still feeling, I guess, just felt like he wanted to repent again. So he texted everybody that was there and said, hey, I just guys really forgive me for that. Not a problem. We forgive you. That was him convicted of what he said or did, and he took the initiative. But there's a fourth option that is really going to prove us, and it's biblical. It's when someone else comes to us and says, you hurt me. So first scenario, God comes to you. Second scenario, you go to God. Third scenario, you go to somebody. Fourth scenario, someone comes to you. And this is what might help us at some of our families in the next few weeks as we continue dealing with parenting and violent parenting and abusive parenting. Not all abuse is with a paddle. Some abuse is neglect. Some abuse is emotional, screaming and yelling and verbally abusing and then just giving kids the cold shoulder. That's abusive. If it was on the job, it'd be called toxic leadership. And most of us 40 years ago were raised toxically. <laughs> we consequently have thicker skin and more expensive therapy bills. <laughs> Not really. This fourth aspect of repentance is you don't realize you've done somebody wrong and they bring it to you. And that's what Matthew 18 teaches us. If your brother offends you, go to him. It doesn't say unless they're over you. If a brother offend you, go to him, whether it's the pastor, an elder, the deacons, mom, dad, a guest minister. If you've been hurt, and we're not talking about, well, just grow up. Don't be so offended. We're talking about you've been hurt. The Bible commands us to go to that person and bring it to them. And if they repent, not make excuses, not defend, not get in pride, not huff up and say, well, I'm the pastor. Who do you think you are? If they repent, you've earned a brother. If they don't repent, leave it alone and go along your merry way and just do it. No, it says, go get somebody else because it has to be resolved. And after you bring them before the whole church for their failure to repent for the hurt they brought, the church has permission to excommunicate them. That's how God sees the prideful stubbornness that refuses to repent. So we have four scenarios here. Let's go over it again. God comes to you, convicts you, you repent. Your, your conscience convicts you, you go to God. Your conscience convicts you, you go to somebody else because you owe them an apology. Someone comes to you, and that's usually where we're going to be proven. And then the kind of fifth proverbial one, or the fifth one that might be an outlier, is God speaks to you about what you did to somebody else. And then you got to go make that right. So I kind of see five there. Hopefully you can see it too. You're either repenting to God or to a person, and how that comes about can be broken down into two other ways. Just to throw that out there, maybe we're studying on your own. So now let's talk about the problems of repentance. Because when it comes to repenting, we're facing issues. And I want us to be able to get the victory over this. And then here in a minute, we're going to turn and look at David. Problem number one. When we're repenting to God, it is often because he has wrought conviction in our lives. We begin to turn our lives because of the shame and discomfort of the spirit of conviction. So that's over here. 
we're going this direction and the Holy Spirit comes upon us and says, if you don't turn, judgment's coming. If you don't turn, you're going to be demoted. If you don't turn, I'm going to expose you. If you don't turn, you just under, we've all been there under that gross conviction. And you're like, oh, crank, 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 crank. I mean, you're like for three or four days, maybe two weeks, you're like crank, 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 crank. Got to get away from that. But the problem arises is that the judgment and the conviction and the severity of God's presence is so strong here because we're so strong into sin. But as we turn away, the presence of God lifts off of us. And God begins to take us at our trajectory that, all right, well, they're, they're making changes. And what happens is we're cranking. We're coming up on, say, 93, 92, 91, 90 degrees. We're due east. Now we start cranking 89, 80 degrees. That conviction leads us, leaves us, and we begin to think, oh, well, I'm okay now. So repentance is incomplete because God isn't staying on us as if we're a six-year-old needing to be reminded to clean up our room and brush our teeth again, again, again. My parents don't call me to check on whether I've cleaned my room or paid my bills. They expect me to be an adult. There is something to be said if God has to stay on us constantly to make changes. It's even worse if it's the pastor that has to stay on us constantly. At some point, we should grow up walk with our God and just know what to do because his word, his Bible tells me so. So the problem is as we slowly turn toward God, the divine pressure slowly lifts, removing the incentive of discomfort, often resulting in an incomplete repentance. So great, we're not going 180 degrees into sin, we're just going 90 degrees out of the will of God. And that's a problem. So we need a solution. I recommend, thinking about the book of Exodus, chapter 20, I recommend when you're here in the presence of God under the fire of conviction and you know exactly what's wrong and you know through the clarity of the Spirit you know exactly where you need to be, that you pull a Moses and you get a chisel and you write it down on a table of stone so you don't forget when you get down to the bottom of the mountain and the power's gone. Because he got those commandments in the presence of God when the mountain was like a furnace and the pavement before him was like sapphire stone. But then he would come out of the glory of God and it's back to normalcy. And it's real easy to forget what God said if you didn't write it down. So when you're under that conviction, and which is why we take notes and services and you should have notes in your prayer time, God said, put away the cigarettes and the porn or my life is going to be destroyed and my wife will leave me. All right, so you got, your, you got your commandments right there. Maybe not a table of stone, but a tablet of ink. Well, when you start to feel pretty good and you're only smoking, you know, two cigarettes a day and only looking at porn twice a month, uh, it's real easy to forget what God said, not even a hint. Well, you know, that's a bulk of it gone, so let's just get down to one cigarette. Then pull your cigarette out, break it in half. You get half a cigarette. You half a cigarette for a while, and then no cigarettes. And if you can fast food for a day, the next time you're tempted to look at porn, just fast the temptation. But don't get hung up at 90 degrees because it's still not the will of God. It's just not the rebellion that was going to quickly destroy your marriage. So write down these commandments so we don't forget. Number two problem with repentance, when we repent. Often when people begin to repent and change, they're offended when no one notices. I hear this a lot as a pastor. Nobody notices. 
Pastor, I'm really changing. Nobody seems to notice. Again, like I said a few minutes ago, if you're having to tell us, it ain't happening. I got a friend. He's lost 55 pounds since September. Every time I see him, I can notice. I don't have to, he doesn't have to say, hey, guys, I'm losing weight. You can see it. And I keep encouraging him, man, you look great. Keep doing it. If you, <laughs> if you have to tell everybody, I lost seven ounces. <laughs> like just now? Like you went to the bathroom? <laughs> like if you're having to advertise incremental changes, don't be offended if we can't tell. Only you and your doctor should celebrate over a seven-ounce loss. The rest of us, work. the way you yelled at us and hammered us a couple months ago, like we can't tell you, you let off on the hammer by six PSI. We, we just couldn't tell. You just used less cuss words this time. Yay, you, but you still yelled at me. Yeah, but it's less F-bombs. Great. I'm sure that's important to you. I'm sorry, but in the moment, all I hear is your hatred. Dial it back. They'll protest, I'm different. Why can't anyone see it? To which we say, yeah, you're three degrees different. But God and our family is needing 177 more degrees before this thing is peaceful. In those instances, apologies will go a long way. Please have mercy on me. Wouldn't be wrong to fall on your knees and say, I did it again. I think it would at least show the sincerity of your fight. We're all like Paul, O wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from this body of death, but at least show that it hurts you when you flare up and hurt people. So what's the solution? If you have to constantly proclaim you're changed, you're probably, you probably haven't. Let another man praise you and not your own mouth. That's Proverbs 27, 2. Let another man praise thee and not thy own mouth. That another point out, can you not see it? Let somebody else come to you and say, you've really changed. We can see it. You're different. But if all you do is advertise it, you should probably use that energy to go change. Just keep changing and apologizing when necessary. All right, third problem. We kind of covered it. I write these notes down because it's coming to me and then it preaches always differently. That third one we, we said already, but we'll call it covered again. Pride. The pride of repentance. We've all had a little bit of pride in the presence of God when the Lord rebuked us and we said, not so, Lord, not so, <laughs> not, not, not so, Lord. I've told you my story of 22 years ago or so being with Pastor Trey and we were praying for Dr. Barclay. Back then he had had some ministry attacks, so we just took a prayer service. And as soon as we began to pray for Dr. Barclay, who is now my pastor all these years later, the Lord spoke to me instantly and said, why are you praying for him? You don't even like the man. And I said, not so, Lord. I love Dr. Barclay. I've been to two years of SMTI. He's prophesied over me. I, I give offerings when he comes. I love him. And the Lord said, no, you don't. You don't even like him. And I protested. And uh, thankfully, I went to my pastor. I said, I want you to judge this word from the Lord. I'm wanting I mean, basically confirmation that God's wrong or I'm hearing a demon or something. And all Pastor Trey said as he gathered his stuff together after prayer services, uh, what did the Lord say? He said, I don't like Dr. Barclay. He said, okay, well, it sounds like you don't like Dr. Barclay. You better get that right. <laughs> and that, there was like no comfort. Let's pray about this. Let me judge that. like, well, it sounds like you're wrong with God and Dr. Barclay. I'd get that right. <laughs> so there are times like Peter, arise, Peter, kill, and eat. Not so, Lord. There are those times people argue with God, but that's not often because he's God and you know you're going to lose. 
And you might wrestle with yourself a little bit and say, I don't, do I really need to apologize? Did, was it, shouldn't they be a little bit bigger than that? Well, if you are, what's it to you if you go repent? I mean, you're the one that judges everybody. Oh, they should just grow up. They have all these problems in their life. Why can't they be like me? Well, because God doesn't want anybody to be like you. We're still trying to convince everybody to be like Jesus. <laughs> Sometimes we'll wrestle with that. But when people come to us and say, you know, Miss Manda, you said something and it hurt me. Or, you know, Mr. Gary, you said something the other day and it hurt me. Or, I, forgive the petty example, you didn't reply to any of my texts the last three weeks. Did you check and make sure they went through? People get upset over the littlest things. I get it. Those ought to be the easiest to apologize for. I'm so sorry. Let me, let me check. Did you, did you send it to me? I don't look. I don't have anything from you. We ought to be able to come to a reconciliation. But pride will arise when we have to repent to each other. And that shouldn't be the case. I get it. I have pride. We all do. But it shouldn't be difficult. If somebody comes obeying Matthew 18 and says, you know, Ben, you offended me. Our heart, if it's right with God, ought to instantly be, oh, man, what did I do? Our heart ought to be to take a knee, not put this wall up, guns out. How dare you? What's our issue? We're going to shoot somebody that was hurt by our behavior? Would we not, would we not want to know where we hurt somebody? A, a soft heart wants to know. I don't want to hurt anybody. Preaching can be convicting. Rebuke can be convicting, but I'm not out to hurt anybody. I want to save people. And if you're a Christian, I think you want to do the same. I think you want to save. I think you want to help. I don't think you're going to take this attitude, suck it up. If they come to you and you can tell they're in fear and trembling and they're nervous and they're hurt, why would you bash them? How is that the love of Christ? I'm your father. Deal with it, boy. You're going to lose your son, and you should. He will find somebody that will love him. He will find another man that will love him. And there's no promise today of what that will look like. So we have this pride, and pride will manifest when people come to us as defensiveness and self-justification, both of which will negate any true repentance. A couple months ago, I had a dear friend of mine I hadn't heard from in a while call me out of the blue, minister. And I said, hey, man, it's good to hear from you. Hadn't, hadn't heard from you in a while. And he said, yeah, that's what I want to talk to you about. I said, okay. He said, I know people have been wondering why we've kind of withdrawn from our fellowship and our association. I said, yeah. And he said, well, I wanted to talk to you about that. I said, okay. He said, the reason is you, me, Chris. And as soon as he said it, my heart went, oh, this is going to be ugly. I said, okay, what did I do? What, what have I done, man? I thought we were friends. How did I offend you? Because that's what it's going to come down to. So he went on. He, he wasn't ruthless with it. He just went on to say uh, in our joking, because he was quite the jokester too, my joking had really hurt him. And he threw a lot of barbs at me, which he has a right to if he's hurt. And if, if what I've done is so hard to him, he withdrew from the will of God over a buddy and our joking. 
So I, and so all I can do is say, I am sorry. Please forgive me. Uh, you know how we get when we get to joking. I had no idea that our joking was hitting that. Please forgive me. All I can do is ask you to forgive me. I might ask why you didn't come to me seven years ago. Why are we just now talking about it? And he said, yeah, that's bad on my part. So he apologized for that. But the whole time he's talking, all I can do is apologize and say, well, man, I, and he said, listen, we're probably never going to fellowship again. Like, man, I hate that. I love you guys. I mean, we, my wife loves your wife. We love your family. We love ministering together. And he said, yeah, it's just, we've just moved on. It's probably never going to be, we're just never going to fellowship. It's all right, man. It's under the blood. But the whole time he's saying that, I'm thinking, but if I'm repenting and that's what you need, you should be able to forgive and we can fellowship. I'm telling you, whatever we were joking about that touched the raw nerve, I'll never touch that again. I just didn't realize I touched something because, you know, when guys get around joking, you can one-upmanship and all of a sudden you hit something, you know, you tell a mama joke, you know, and you're like, you didn't realize mama was such a sensitive subject when he just made fun of your dad or whatever it is, you know, nothing dirty, just guys goofing off. But he said, yeah, I said, all right. Well, I got off the phone with him. And it really hurt my heart to think I was the reason, number one, he withdrew from where he should have been. And it hurt my heart that, number two, it had been this long since he would call me. And it hurt my heart, number three, that my apology wasn't going to be able to restore our friendship. That really bugged me. So I called my pastor. And I said, Pastor, I just got a call from this brother, and I want to repent to you because he just told me I'm the reason he withdrew from you. And if that cost you a son in the faith and financial support and prayer partner and preaching opportunities, I want to repent to you because that was not my heart. I said, you know how we guys can get. And he said, son, don't kid yourself. It's not your fault. He said, you may have pushed a line joking with him, but we all know how he is. He's the biggest jokester out of you all. I said, yes, sir. He said, you're a scapegoat. You're just an excuse. This is way deeper than you, son. You've done me no wrong. If you'd had, I'd have dealt with you about it when it happened. He said, this is not your problem, so I don't want you to feel bad about this. I still do, because this guy was a very good friend of mine. My point of it is, when someone calls and says, you're the problem, it's going to be a real good test in that moment for where your humility level is. My only bone of contention against him was, why didn't you call me sooner? And even that's going to be asked tenderly. Because that's, that's no excuse to say, well, we're equal here. If, if our joking offended you, please forgive me. Please apologize to anybody in your family I affected by that. Anytime somebody comes to you in this Matthew 18 situation, which I guess we should read real quick just to have another verse to turn to, and then we're going to turn to um, Samuel. It's going to instantly prove how much pride you and I have. There have been, that's a positive story that makes me look like the hero. So let me, I've been plenty of times people come to me and I say, whatever, and I fail the test. Or I get defensive and say, whatever. We've all been there. We need to pass more tests when people come to us. The Bible says it's impossible that offenses should come. And the Bible says that if we offend someone, we ought to go to them. The Bible also says that we ought to commend ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. And that if we, our behavior has been perceived one way, even though that wasn't it, we are still responsible for the perception. 
where we kind of kind of shirk responsibilities where we think, well, that wasn't my intent, so they got to get over it. No, if it was perceived that way, you have to make that right. You and I are responsible for cleaning up any vain imagination our lifestyle may be presented. So Matthew 18 says, verse 50, more, if your brother shall trespass against you, go and tell him his fault. It doesn't say mom and dad. It says brother. So children have the have the opportunity to do this Bible too. What if the trespasser is mom and dad? There's no exemption here. Moms and dads, that's your brother or sister. That's just your much bigger brother or sister, especially if you're at home. So even if it's your parents, you have a right to go to them and say, listen, you hurt me and it still hurts. I haven't been able to shake it. Go and tell him his fault between thee and him alone. If he shall hear you, and that's where we fail. Pride keeps us from hearing. Defensiveness keeps us from hearing. Self-justification keeps us from hearing. When my friend called me, he said, you're the problem, Chris. I wanted to know what I had done because I don't want to do it again. This is a great guy. And if, if I offended him enough to cause him to retreat from a wonderful fellowship of ministers, don't let me do that stupid thing again, ever. I'm pretty smart. I do dumb stuff, but I'm smart enough not to do dumb stuff twice, usually. There are those times you're like, eh, I don't think I learned enough the first time. Let's try it again. <laughs> if he'll hear you, thou hast gained your father, your brother, your sister, your mother. Now, I was just telling somebody before service, this may present some cleanup for grown children now. But for those of us that still have kids at home, it would probably be wise to regularly check base with them and say, have I hurt you? I, w- I would rather pay repentance on installation. If I hurt you today, daughter of mine, I want to repent to you today. If I hurt you, son of mine, I want to repent to you. I don't want to wait till you're 26 and need therapy for us to sort this out because I was just a belligerent ding-dong full of pride while I was raising you. You and I, if we double down on our pride, we'll lose even more respect in the eyes of our kids because they won't care about your accomplishments they just want to know if you're humble and loving. Your kids will be proud of you even if you never do anything praiseworthy in the news. They just want you to love them, be there for them, and cheer them on. And if you can't do that because you're too stubborn and selfish and prideful, they don't care if you're an astrophysicist and put people on Jupiter. They said of A.W. Tozer, who is heralded as one of the greatest theologians of the last century, it was A.W. Tozer. Great guy. He gets quoted all the time by everybody. He's not just like a denominational hero. He's everybody's A.W. Tozer hero. A.W. Tozer's wife, when Tozer died, she said, A.W. Tozer loved God, but my new husband loves me. She didn't care that he was a theologian. All she could say was, he didn't love me. That's a damning testimony when Ephesians 5 tells us to love our wives as Christ loves the church. Tozer loved God, but my new husband loves me. That's all that woman wanted. Still being quoted today. If, verse 16, they will not hear you, then take with thee one or two more. So it's biblical to take some people with you. This is not you being ganged up on. This is your pride being confronted. What's funny is often if pride's there, it will double down and get defensive even more. 
Well, if you act like a feral cat, it's because you are one. It only gets ugly if you fight. You'd like to be able to just pick up that feral cat just by the nap of its neck, put it in the cage, whatever. But if it fights, then you've got to get that lasso out. If it fights really hard, you've got to get the beanbag gun out. I mean, I don't know how they put down animals or deal with them, but tranquilizer dart. But if you just say, here, kitty, kitty, and go in the cage, that's easy. But you, you and I only make it as hard as we want it to be. If they won't hear you one-on-one, -on -one, take two or three with you. That in the mouth of two or three witnesses, every word may be established. Could we stand to hear it if two or three people said, no, what they're saying is true. You are that way. Or will we defend against that? If two or three people are witnessing against you, you need to shut your mouth and listen to their hurt. One person could miscue something. Two or three people? The last thing you need to, go, need to do is go find somebody that will side with you. They're a little out of control, don't you think? That is a little excessive, don't you think? What you're looking for is somebody to affirm your cause so you don't have to change. I think a humble person would say, I got two or three witnesses telling me this. Judge me. You're not on that panel. Judge me. Am I really that way? Do you see any merit in that? Because I want to know. I want to know. And if that person says, I love you, but I can see their perspective, then you're guilty. You are the man. How quickly will you repent? That if the excuses that pride manifests as defensiveness, self-justification, excuses, but excuses reject responsibility and ownership. Well, I was just raised differently. You had the Bible. Well, you know, I'm, just, I'm from the North. You had the Bible. Well, we come from a different people. You had the Bible. You had the Holy Spirit. You had a pastor. No excuses. So let me give you a couple keys real quick. Actually, go ahead and turn with me because I, I do want to cover Samuel, 2 Samuel. Maybe I can kind of uh, blanket us with the story of Samuel and David's repentance. Let me give you a couple. 2 Samuel chapter 12, and as you're turning there, keys to biblically repenting to each other, especially when you need to repent for reconciliation. One of the reasons we repent is to restore fellowship. We've been given the ministry of reconciliation whereby we reconcile people back to God. But if we're good at reconciling people to God, we ought to be able to reconcile people back to ourselves. Our heart ought to be to have as much fellowship as we can, as is possible under the allowed terms and conditions of the other person. And if the other person says, if you would just repent, we could be best friends again, then repent. Fall on the sword. But don't be prideful and say, no, that's your problem. Number one, when you have to repent, you and I are submitting ourselves to the mercy of the other person's mercy. When, when, if I've sinned against my wife and I've hurt her, and I recognize by the Spirit of God, I recognize by my own conviction, I recognize just by being a human and a man, I owe her an apology if I have sinned against my wife, I'm coming to her and I am submitting my existence to the mercy of her mercy. I am putting myself under her, even though I'm her husband. If I have to repent to any of you, I got to go and put myself under you. It's not, it's not about my position anymore. You're my sister. You're my brother in Christ. If I've hurt you, 
I come and I take a knee at your presence and say, I want you to forgive me. I, I'm sorry I said it that way. I'm, I, I'm sorry I hurt you. I had to apologize to one person. They said, you said this, and this really cut me to the bone. I said, you know what? I totally see how I did that. I still agree with what I said. I won't ever say it that way again, though. I'm not going to deny what I believe, but I can probably word it a lot better. So I said, I want you to forgive me. I don't change my opinion, but I want you to forgive me for how I said it because that was too hurtful. That was too hard. We cannot forget that when we need forgiveness, we're pulling ourselves under the authority of somebody else. When I need my five-year-old to forgive me, I'm submitting to his authority. Whosoever sins, he remits, they're remitted. Whosoever sins, he forgives, they are forgiven. He's a child of God. My son, five years old, is born again. The gospel applies to him. If he retains my sins, my sins are retained. If he forgives my sins, my sins are forgiven. So in that moment when I sin against my five-year-old, I'm submitting to his authority in Christ. To me, this is a simple concept, but we don't understand authority. We want to command mountains and trees and demons, but we can't even command our own mouth to shut up. I'm your mother. You're a wretched human being. Just because you nursed me, just because you incubated me, doesn't mean you've ever acted like a mother. I'm your father. You're a sperm donor. I could have come from a donor at a lab. Fathering and mothering is way more than just being a biological donator. If that, in that moment you are not equals, you are beneath them, even in the parent-child or pastor-sheep roles or husband-wife roles. If I need your forgiveness, I'm, I'm asking you to use your authority in Christ to let my charges go. My authority no longer trumps you as a pastor, as a husband, as a father, as a leader. If I need your forgiveness, you can hold it over me. Now, if I repent and you don't forgive me and it's a genuine repentance on my part and you don't let me go, that's between you and God. I've done all I can do. And if you truly want to forgive me, it shouldn't take a lot to trigger that forgiveness. All I wanted you to hear was say, I'm sorry and I didn't ever mean to do it. I, did, I was wrong and I would change it if I could. I just wanted to hear you say it, Mom. I just wanted to hear you say it, Dad. just wanted to hear you say it, husband, wife. Some people, though, you'll never be able to get forgiveness out of because they're so hard, but you should at least try. Number two, if you need their forgiveness and you want restoration to occur, there can be no excuses or self-defense. If you need mercy, shut up and plead guilty. You can't say, I'm sorry, honey. It's just a stressful week. You say, you're right. You're right. I'm out of control. I haven't prayed long enough today. You're right. Just, just shut up and plead guilty. Who are you to tell them they don't hurt? Who are you to tell them you didn't hurt them? Who are you to tell them they should be? Who are you? We, we're nobody. We need to say, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Who am I to tell my five-year-old I was too rough with him? It's only pride. And pride destroys relationships daily. Number three, if you have caused pain or suspect you have, I recommend you allow them to voice their hurts. Understand why it hurt them. You should want to know how you hurt someone you care about. If they've trespassed against you 
or they've trespassed, you've trespassed against them, you're going to hurt them. Otherwise, they're brushing it off anyway. Like, ah, oh, that's just a bad day. He's like that on a bad day. But if you've hurt them, you should want to know how. You, you should want to know how you're a bull in a china shop, maybe when you are. And that way, you can lay that to your heart, as I said in the beginning, and understand how exceedingly sinful or hurtful this behavior is and realize it's not funny, that it's not tolerable. If you and I could understand how much we deeply hurt somebody, it would go a long way for us to change that behavior. And unfortunately, what happens in a lot of our relationships is that we get to a place where we don't even allow the people to speak anymore. So they don't even want to bring it to us. They just have to endure. So when it's a kid, they want to hurry up and leave. When it's a wife or a husband, they're just going to be miserable in their marriage. There ought to always be that open door of communication, especially in the family, where if I hurt my wife, she can come to me. If she hurts me, I can bring it to her. If I hurt my kids, they can tell me. It should always be regularly vented. It doesn't need to build up like a volcano till it erupts and blows half the mountain to kingdom come. It ought to regularly be able to go pfft, pfft, and you can help them, your children or your spouse, navigate some of these nuances. Let them voice it. If you always tell them to shut up and suck it up, it means you don't have the wisdom to help them process it. Allow them to share their hurts. It will provide insight to your sins and hopefully motivate a quicker change. So there's three thing, uh, four things, excuse me, three things right there. Submit yourself to their mercy. No excuses. Let them share their pain and just listen. Let them cry on you. Let them get mad at you. Dr. Barclay taught me as when I was a younger pastor years ago. He said, everybody should be allowed to swing at you and yell at you once. Let them get it off their chest. I even permit people to cuss in my office if they're frustrated and venting. It's not always at me. Sometimes it's at their spouse. I'll let a couple cuss words go back and forth because it shows me the real them because all of you have a church facade. All of you. You look real pretty now. We could have an open mic night for your angels. Your angels would go, look at these feathers. Look, look. Have you ever seen such? These used to be beautiful feathers. I'm always dodging knives and pots they're throwing at each other. Don't trust them, Pastor Chris. No, 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 no. I'm asking for reassignment. Just put in for it. Send me to Afghanistan. It's safer there. (laughs) Yeah, it is true. You all have a church facade. Let them voice their pain. So go to 2 Samuel there. Let's run through this real quick. We'll wrap up with this. This may take another five or ten minutes, but give me some time here. This is the story. Now think about the scenario. David somehow backslid in his heart so that when the men go off to war, David hangs out. He spies Bathsheba in the distance bathing on the top of her house. She should be able to do so because all the men are off to war. So the man's not where he needs to be. And he spies her. He calls to her. She comes and they fornicate. My personal conviction, disagree if you want, she's Uriah's wife. Uriah is one of the mighty men of valor. She's been in the cave of Dulem. She's been with David for a long time. I personally believe there might have been some kind of temptation and tension between the two of them for quite a while. This isn't like, ooh, who is she? She, she has been trained by David. Uriah has been brought up through the rank and file of the cave of Dulem. They're, they're elders in his church, and they've been with him a long time. He knows her. She knows him. He calls. She comes along. She doesn't flee. They get pregnant. 
David conspires. The, cons uh, the conspiracy doesn't fix it. He calls Uriah home from the battlefront. She's missed her period. Go, come home, have relations with your wife. Uriah is more honorable, says, I refuse to be intimate with my wife when my men are out there fighting. I'm not going to. He slept at the door of David, then went back to war. How honorable and dishonorable David was. Honorable Uriah, dishonorable. So when that doesn't work, he has Joab move Uriah to the front line so he'll be shot by arrows and killed so David can have her. They can hurry up and consummate a marriage and the pregnancy can be covered. All of this harm, all of this harm, all of this harm, this is months of work. This doesn't happen in a day. He doesn't see her naked and tomorrow he has Uriah killed. They're going back and forth between battlefronts. How often, how long does it take a woman to recognize she's pregnant? Weeks. We're talking at least five weeks. We've got chunks of time. And then when he won't come home and sleep with his wife, you got a couple more time, maybe another week or two, or maybe two months before Uriah is finally killed. You, you have maybe two or three months of conspiracy. David is not repenting. David is wreaking havoc. David's not repenting. David's wreaking havoc. Then David takes the wife, marries her, puts on another show. And then the Bible tells us that the child who does die, who they conceived, is a toddler when judgment finally comes for David. That means at least three or four years have passed since adultery and the judgment of God. This is terrifying, just like when people have come to me and said, Pastor, you hurt me. When? Six years ago. I have learned to say, forgive me. Not, maybe later I'll say, okay, why are you just not bringing this to me? It's like my friend, hey, I'm sorry. I wish we could have resolved this six years ago. We don't always know when judgment comes, but we've got to be humble enough to fall on our face then and say, I'm wrong. Whatever it is, forgive me. If you'll just say, forgive me, it kind of sets the whole mood to not be so tense and it allows humility and grace to prevail. So we have this three or four years after the initial affair, the prophet Nathan comes and visits David and he gives him that parable about the lamb. Uh, verse one, the Lord sent Nathan unto David. And he came unto him and said unto him, there were two men in one city, the one rich, the other poor. The rich man had exceeding many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing save one little ewe lamb, which he had brought up and nourished up. And it grew up together with him and with his children. It did eat of his own meat and drank of his own cup and lay in his bosom and was unto him as a daughter. And there came a traveler unto the rich man, which is like the sex drive. It just comes and goes. And he spared to take of his own flock, because David had several wives he could have had intimacy with, and of his own herd to dress for the wayfaring man called Lust that was coming to him. But he took the poor man's wife, the lamb, dressed it for the man that was to come, that is Lust. And David's anger was greatly kindled against the man. And he said to Nathan, As the Lord liveth, this man that hath done this thing shall surely die. Wow. All of a sudden, he wants justice. You haven't spoken of justice in four years. And what's interesting is the next verse, verse 6. He shall restore the lamb fourfold. That's Exodus 22.1. That shows us David knows the law, and when it conveniences him, he quotes it. What about thou shalt not commit adultery? What about thou shalt not lie? What about thou shalt not murder? What about the 10 big ones? What's this little obscure one about, you know, if someone steals a lamb, you got to pay fourfold. And if it's oxen, it's five. He knows those obscure laws. 
which is always how religion is. It has everybody else's justice and everybody else's judgment, but its own. And Nathan said to David, you are the man. And if David was humble in that moment, he would have said, guilty. But David doesn't. David knew the heart of God. He knew the judgment of God. He knew the retribution of God. He should have said guilty, but he doesn't. Nathan is able to go on and pronounce judgment. We'll read here. And I'm convinced that had David been humble enough, it could have stopped with thou art the man. You have hurt people here, David. But he doesn't. I'm sure he's going, what have I done wrong? What have I done wrong? He doesn't see it. He can quote scripture. He wants justice. I want it right. Who are they? I'm the king. I'll do what's right. No, you won't. You're a whore and a murderer and a liar and a conspirator. And you've been this way for four years. No repentance for four years. Well, why are we bringing it up now? It's in the past. Why did God bring it up four years later? It hadn't been resolved. And without resolution, there can be no fellowship. So here comes the, 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 the prophecy, the judgment. Thus says the Lord God of Israel, I anointed thee king over Israel, and I delivered thee out of the hand of Saul. And I'm sure David's going, yep, yep, that's right. Oh, yeah, I'm anointed. I gave thee your master's house. That's right. And your master's wives into your bosom. Yep, yep, got a whole bunch of them. And gave thee the house of Israel and of Judah. And if that had been too little, I would have moreover have given unto thee such and such things. Yep, well, God's good to me. I'm anointed. I'm appointed. I'm spiritual. Oh, yeah. What is this I'm the man thing? Wherefore hast thou despised the commandment of the Lord to do evil in his sight? What are you talking about, Nathan? You've killed Uriah the Hittite with the sword. David could have said, why are you bringing up the past? Because you hadn't repented for it. You wanted to sweep it under the rug and act like I never acted that way. And you've taken his wife to be your wife and have slain him with the sword of the children of Ammon. Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house because the house despised me and has taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house. When you despise your household, they will rise up against you and it will be your fault. And I will take your wives before your eyes and give them unto your neighbor and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of the sun for thou did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and before the sun. It takes six verses for David to finally find faith to repent. And David said unto Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. Why couldn't he say that in the beginning? Because of pride, self-justification, and excuses. I am convinced, knowing the heart of God, not the best, but knowing the character of God, if he had just said in the beginning, you are the man. Oh, how, how, how? Nathan, this doesn't sound good. Have mercy on me. How? Why did, he, why did it take so much judgment before David's heart could finally be humbled? By now, the judgment has been pronounced. The sword won't leave your home. You're going to lose your wives to your neighbor. And his son did that. His son slept with all of his wives on the top of the roof for everybody to see. Can you imagine your son having sex with your wife just to mock you publicly? The, the sword will never leave your house. Four of his children died. But that's what he said. Take the one, give him four. He pronounced his own judgment. I have sinned, and Nathan said unto David, The Lord also hath put away your sin. Thou shalt not die. Why didn't he say that at the beginning? I'm guilty. Have mercy. 
David was able to spare his own life through penitence and redeem the last 15, 18 years of his kingdom. But it was never the same. The sword never left his house. Absalom rises up. His kids start dying. It's horrible. It's wretched. Verse 14, Howbeit because by this deed thou hast, caused, uh, hast given great occasion to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme, the child also that is born unto thee shall surely die. The word child there is not infant. We often think of it as a newborn. The word is toddler. God has every right to talk to us about how we have sinned against him anytime he wants to. Our children have any right to bring up anything old school if they want to. If it would help us, we should be able to bring it up. Now, if you keep bringing it up and you keep bringing it up and they keep saying, you're weird. Stop it. One apology, once and for all, that should be sufficient. When we get everything, let's just deal with it. But I don't want us to be like David that has to get halfway through judgment and the next thing to be pronounced is death because that's what he said, this man shall die. I believe if David hadn't said, I'm guilty, he would have died too. On the spot, that day, the next day, who knows? Why can't we just instantly say, I am guilty? Please tell me, how did I hurt you? I'm sorry. Pastor, I got to talk to you. This isn't comfortable for me. You said something the other day that hurt me. Please, I'm sorry. What did I say? Please know it was not my heart to hurt you. Please also know if I wanted to hurt you, I could hurt you. But I didn't mean to. What did I say so that I don't say it again? And let's talk about what I said. Let's talk about maybe why it hurt you. Why, why do I got to be defensive over that? Why do I look at my kids and say, just grow up? Get over it. That's so old. That's so in the past. God doesn't bring it up anymore. Why do you? No, no. If I bring it up, God will bring it up. If it's that heavy on my heart, I have every right to bring it up. Quick review. We're, on, we're out of time. Repentance is often a process where we go from 180 degrees to 160, 150, 120, 90, 80, 45, 25. Don't be discouraged if you haven't fully turned the lifestyle yet. Keep working on it. If someone comes to you and you need to repent to them, no defense, no self-justification, just humility. Forgive me. What do, what do I need to do to make this right? What do I need to do to get restoration? What do I need to do to have sweet fellowship with you? What can I do to make this right? That's our response. If we can walk out both of these things, it will really, really help us. If we can hear how we've hurt them, it'll go a long way towards changing how we carry ourselves. Now, we've all offended people. We've all hurt people. Sometimes we meant to. I think most of the time we don't mean to. But we're still responsible for the hurt we cause. We ought to be able to repent and forgive easily. And that's the mandate we're under. We're not prideful people. We want to restore people. We want to help people. We don't want to do damage to people especially those we claim to love the most.